how many of you made it to the uh, marriage event last night? Okay. Uh, I asked because you got a little dose of marriage last night, and wouldn't you know it, the Lord, not me, <laughs> providentially overseen that we would get a heaping dose of marriage this weekend. Because as we walk into 1 Peter 3, uh, it is all about this relationship between husband and wife. So I want, I want to start by just backing us out to the context of where we're at in 1 Peter, and, and then we're going to kind of get into some more nitty-gritty details. Um, you may recall from last week, Peter stands up, writes this letter, I imagine it being delivered to listeners who are eagerly waiting words of hope. They're expecting comforting things. Oh, Peter wrote us a letter. This is going to be great. He's going to tell us how he knows how difficult things are. He's going to tell us that everything's just going to get better. Everything will be all right, right? Like a two-year-old sitting on your lap. It's okay. What does Peter do? He says, church, submit to authority figures in your life. Caesar, the government, Roman rule, Roman occupation, submit to it. Okay, can you imagine Peter's listeners saying, oh, uh, hold on, pause. I mean, why do you think Peter includes all of this yielding talk? Because it's not in our nature to yield to people who treat us poorly or unjustly. And when we feel treated unfairly or unjustly by authority figures, it's even worse. If you don't believe me, get in your car after church and drive in whatever direction you want to drive. Go as high up into the mountains as you possibly can. If you see a gate, just figure out how to get through it. Keep going. If you see a sign that says, do not trespass, just keep going up the driveway. Make sure you're, you're out of cell phone range, off of the pavement. If you see one of those signs that says, uh, forget the dog, beware of the owner, just keep going knock on that door and see what happens. I, my guess is you're going to find someone who feels like government or authority figures have in some way, shape, or form treated him or her unjustly or unfairly, and they might be a little bristly. It tends to happen when we feel that way. And so Peter doesn't, Peter doesn't skip this issue. He doesn't coddle them and tell them everything's going to be all right. Jesus makes everything better. He says, submit to those authority figures. I mean, that must have been a heavy thing for his audience to hear. Yield, submit, why? So that the Gentiles, so that the godless culture that you live in will see your exemplary life and they might find Jesus. That they will see your life and they might find Jesus. And we got to understand that yielding in that context and in our context is extraordinarily difficult, but it's not new. It's not something that Peter just came up with and thought, oh, this will really throw a wrench into their plans. This is something that is pervasive from cover to cover in the Bible, and it is an expectation that yielding, laying aside our rights, laying aside our demands for the good of another, that it, that concept is going to touch on every relationship for the follower of Christ. Uh, consider Paul in talking to persons who are outside of the family of faith. What does Paul say? He says, I have become all things to all people. He's laid aside his rights. He's laid aside his preferences in hopes that by doing so, him laying down those things would help others see Christ. And so Paul, as some of you know, uh, was a tent maker. He had a second job. So he planted churches, he preached, he did all of the 
pastoral things, but he didn't ask for a salary. He went and he worked to pay for his expenses. It was within his right to ask for them to compensate him. It was normative for a gathering or a church or a group of believers to compensate the person who was doing that. Paul said, I'm laying that aside, not because I don't deserve it, not because it's not my right, but because I want you to see Jesus, and I think that this could get in the way. Lays aside his right so that people will see Jesus. How about in the context of uh, marriage? Paul, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, he says, uh, wives, or for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And there's an A and a B. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. In other words, that when we come together, we lay aside some of our rights. We lay aside some of our preferences. We lay aside even some of the authority over our own bodies in the sense that we belong to each other. We are two that have become one. It is assumed that we will lay aside some of our rights and our preferences for the good of the marriage, for God's glory in our marriage, again, so that people will see our lives and maybe find Christ. How about in the body, uh, in the body of Christ, in local churches? Some of you are familiar with some of the one another passages, things like John 13, where God's people are, are asked to love one another. In Galatians 5.13, serve one another. Galatians 6, carry one another's burdens. Hebrews 3, encourage one another. Life in the body of Christ, life with believers, has this interwoven mutual submission where we lay aside our rights and lay aside our preferences so that people on the outside, people far from God, will see the lives of Christians, their exemplary behavior, as he says earlier, and that they might find Christ. So we discover very quickly that it's not about us, right? It's not about us. Our lives are not about us. So we see this this sense from cover to cover in the Bible that the kingdom of God really turns the world systems upside down. In so many ways, the kingdom of God turns the world systems upside down. Culture says, be strong, defend yourself. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Culture says, get all you can. As long as you're working, make as much as you possibly can. Accumulate all you can. The more that you have, the happier you'll be. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Culture says, stick up for yourself. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Following Christ, the kingdom of God turns the world systems upside down. We're generally wanting to climb the corporate ladder. Jesus says, the first shall be last. And he says, if you want to find your life, you must lose it. Following Christ is upside down from culture because culture is broken, Right? Following Christ is upside down. It is countercultural because culture is broken. And so the church doesn't need to look more like culture in order to be effective. The church needs to look more like Christ in order to be effective. And so when Peter dives in here, he's telling these people, I know this is hard for you. I know it is hard for you to yield to these wicked rulers. Yield anyway. They have enough people opposing them. Be different as unto the Lord. Nicole loves it when I bring her uh, flowers. 
doesn't make sense to me. They don't last long. Uh, they don't smell great. But she likes it. One of the most significant things early in our dating life was me having flowers shipped to her office. I don't remember why I did it. It didn't come from this deep place of love and affection for her where I was just consumed with my thoughts about her and it overflowed to getting online and spending $20 to have flowers shipped to her office, but it really meant something to her. And so one of the things that I learned is, is sometimes what is behind an action makes an action even more uh, meaningful. Sometimes the heart behind something makes it even more meaningful. So as we, as we consider those one another passages, each of those acts of love, when we love each other, when we're patient with each other, when we forgive each other, when we bear with each other's burdens, right? We are submitting ourselves. We are yielding to the Lord because we're saying we're going to do this his way, not mine. Lord, I believe your way is better. I want you to pilot this thing. I'm going to do it as you have asked, not what is comfortable or what is easy or what maybe fills my tank. And we see that each of those actions is an act of worship and yielding to the Lord in addition to each other. As we go into marriage this morning, First uh, Peter 3, two thoughts on marriage. One, uh, from Genesis chapter 2, uh, marriage is God's thing. God instituted it. Cultures, civilizations can have civil unions. They can have two people that sign a piece of paper. They can call it what they want. They can describe it how they will. Biblical marriage is something that God instituted. We see that at the end of Genesis chapter 2. As you recall that uh, Adam is there and there's no sin in the world yet. So Adam is in just his perfected state. I mean, I imagine Adam at this point has a full head of hair. He can fix anything. He's smart, right? He's probably sensitive. He's in touch with his emotions. He can build things, six-pack abs. Like, he's everything. And what does God do in Genesis 2.18? He looks at Adam and he's like, oh, shoot. It is not good for man to be alone. In verse 23, after God had taken the rib, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Naked and not ashamed. Nothing to hide no subjects to avoid, no skeletons, no guilt, no shame, no resentment, no festering bitterness. They were naked, fully known by each other and not ashamed. We see that marriage is instituted by God and so therefore we should understand that it serves his purposes uh, Ephesians 5, 32 and 33, as Paul talks about marriage, he finishes that section um, by saying this mystery is profound. And he says, what I'm saying is refers to this, to Christ and the church. And then he says, however, let each one of you love his wife and let the wife see that she respects her husband. In other words, he says, I'm talking about marriage. I'm talking about husbands and I'm talking to wives. But ultimately what I'm talking about is Christ and his church. You see, 
our marriage was instituted by God and it's for his purposes and it points to the relationship between Christ and the church. It shows the world the relationship between Christ and the church. It shows the world the power of God to transform sinful people. How else do you stay married and then loving each other for decades? It is only the power of God that does that, that makes something desirable, that, that grows in intimacy. God uses marriage to bring order out of disorder, right? We know that the world is in a chaotic state of disorder. God uses marriage to create a a healthy place for a man and a woman, a Christ-following husband, a Christ-following woman to grow in holiness. You've heard that it said that he's after our holiness, not just our temporary happiness, uh, but he uses marriage to bring order out of disorder. We know that marriage is good for kids. The American College for Pediatricians cites Marriage is a vital component to a healthy boy or girl. That kids need that to thrive. That it is essential. Is that what your marriage is? Naked and unashamed. Maybe you've been married for a bit and the perpetual honeymoon that you expected where one day would be better than the last, maybe it hasn't materialized that way. You're not sure why, uh, but maybe you, your spouse isn't as fun as they once were. Your spouse isn't as interesting as they once were. Your spouse isn't as interested in you as they once were. I'm not sure really what to do or where to go. Some of you have been married for a long time, and, and you might be resigned to the fact that what you have is what you'll always have. It's been this way for decades. What are we going to do now? You don't dislike each other, but there's no, there's very little delight. You do fun things together at times, but maybe there's not very much joy. Where do we go from there? Uh, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 is our text this morning. Uh, Would you open up your Bibles with me and and we'll read uh, this text. And there's six verses to ladies and one verse to Peter or to men. And so we just can see from that that Peter probably had a pretty good understanding of the limited capacity of the men in the room. Uh, He just gives them one succinct verse. But again, consider that Peter's audience living in a foreign land. In some ways they feel powerless. In some ways they feel unrepresented. Peter just presses them right into that difficulty. He starts with institutions, yielding to institutions. He moves to masters, bosses, employees. And now he jumps right into marriage. 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7 says this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Verse 2, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And then verse 7, likewise, husbands, 
Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, one of the things that, that I just want us to, to pause and, and to see is that Jesus was radically countercultural in the way that he approached marginalized people groups okay so uh, in culture the jews wanted nothing to do with the gentiles uh, jews wanted nothing to do with the samaritans and what does jesus do on that that long journey he stops and he speaks with a samaritan woman and his followers come back after going into town and they say why is jesus talking to her jesus walked with women talked with women taught them involved them in his ministry Jesus was radically countercultural in the way that he involved women in his ministry. Uh, I just looked up for fun some of the contemporary writings around the time when Jesus lived and before. Uh, it's very derogatory, as you might imagine, towards women. Philo writes that a woman's traits are weak. Um, 200 years before the birth of Christ, Sirach writes, better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. It is woman who brings shame and disgrace. And so in Galatians 3, when Jesus says there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, uh, male or female, what he's saying is the gospel washes over all of this stuff and we are all one in Christ. And Jesus puts his money where his mouth is all throughout his earthly ministry. And so we just have to understand that Jesus was radically countercultural in affirming and in valuing women in ways that far exceeded uh, what happened in culture. Uh, that's important because this passage has been shaded poorly by, for some of you, for some of you ladies specifically, from men who have twisted this text in some way to coerce behavior. affirm or to uh, oppress with submission. Some of you have seen mothers treated awfully and the Bible used as a rationale for that terrible treatment. Texts like this weaponize for a domineering egotistical man. So if that's you this morning, I, I just want to say sorry. That's not the heart of Jesus. That's not the pattern of Jesus. That's not what you see uh, in the text. That's not the way that he lives. That's not the way that he engaged with women. That's not what we read here. What does this look like? Uh, first, there's a command uh, for wives. It says, wives, um, be in subject to your husband. In other words, Peter says, hope in the Lord and yield to your husband. Says, hope in the Lord in verses five and six, and yield to your husband. What does that look like? Uh, from verses three to four, one he says, don't focus on external beauty, but instead cultivate the inner imperishable beauty. What does that mean? Uh, turn to Proverbs thirty-one if you have your Bibles. Uh, what does internal imperishable beauty look like? Again, maybe you've heard it preached at some point. Don't you dare braid your hair. Don't wear any gold. Don't buy nice clothes. That's no good. Okay, the point is, is not that braided hair or that 
gold jewelry or that uh, designer shirt or something uh, is intrinsically evil, but to put our hope in external things, uh, to find our dignity in external things, to find our worth in external things, to find our sense of value in external things, our sense of satisfaction in external things is tragic. And he says, instead, cultivate inner beauty. Uh, let's read Proverbs 31, uh, 25 through 30, just to uh, get a snapshot of what that inner beauty looks like. Uh, Proverbs 31 talks about the excellent wife. says that in verse 10. Verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing. In other words, it's what's on the inside, not what's on the outside. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. That is a secure woman who opens her mouth with wisdom, and kindness is on her tongue. She doesn't have to compete with anyone. She doesn't have to uh, make anyone else look bad to make herself look good. There's no cattiness there. And she opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, excellently, but you surpass them all. So it's obvious to all. It's obvious to her kids. It's obvious to her husband. Her exemplary character shines. It comes out. It's obvious to all, and it's praiseworthy. Verse 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain but a woman who fears the lord is to be praised ladies what are you doing to cultivate a fear of the lord what are you doing to cultivate strength and dignity what are you doing to cultivate wisdom and kindness peter says give yourself to these things don't hope in external beauty. He also says, don't hope in your husband. If we're going to hope in the Lord, we've got to understand what not to hope in. Not Understand what not to hope in. So he says, hope in the Lord, don't hope in external beauty, and don't hope in your husband. How do we know if you're hoping in your husband? Uh, there's a bunch of ways, but one of the ways that you might see it come out at home uh, is you might find yourself constantly uh, with your words uh, belittling, badgering uh, your husband. Why aren't you this? Why aren't you that? Why aren't you more of a spiritual leader? Why don't you pray more? Why don't you lead us? Why don't you spend more time with the kids? Why don't you make more money? Read Proverbs twenty-one nineteen if you want to know what the Bible says uh, about this sort of arrangement. It says it's better to live in a desert, right? No food, no water, scorpions, hot sun, cactus, hot dirt. It says it's better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Elsewhere it says it's better to live on the roof of a house. And I think what Peter is getting at is, is sometimes uh, there's this mindset that a, that a husband is going to be a, you know, a Disney fairy tale, right? A knight or a prince on a white horse that rides in and, and saves the day. And, and one of the ways that maybe 
we get that sense, as, as, as many of you know, all the ways that your husband is not like a prince on a white horse and all the things that he hasn't done to save the day and all the things that he hasn't provided for you, all of his offenses, you can't forgive him for those things uh, because he was supposed to be your knight in shining armor and you failed colossal, colossally at something that he was never capable of doing to begin with. Ladies, if you expect your husband to be a knight in shining armor, you're going to crush him with the weight of your expectations. There's only one that comes in on a white horse, right? It's Jesus in Revelation 19 or Revelation 21. If you expect your husband to be what only Jesus can be, you will crush him with the weight of your expectations. If you expect him to be your your source of self-worth, you'll be needy for his affirmation, and he'll never be able to compliment you enough. If you expect him to get you through all pain and suffering, you'll turn to him instead of the Lord, and it will cripple your faith. And guess what? He won't be enough to get you through all pain and suffering. One of the ways uh, the text says that ladies can demonstrate that they hope in the Lord is to yield to the Lord and therefore yield to their husbands. Now, uh, it gets really messy about what does yielding look like. So here's some things yielding is not. Yielding is not agreeing with everything your husband says. I don't think anyone is, needs to be given permission to disagree or to think that they need to agree with everything their husband says. Yielding is not agreeing with everything your husband says. Yielding does not mean you're not free to think for yourself and express what you think. Yielding does not mean you're resigned to do nothing about your relationship or nothing about the health, well-being, and spiritual vitality of your marriage or husband. Yielding does not mean putting your husband's will above the Lord's will. Yielding does not mean that you have to go to your husband for everything. Finally, yielding is not a fearful response. Uh, In Ephesians 5, it is clear that it is a voluntary response God's instruction. It's not fear-based. How did Jesus yield to the Father? Those are some things that, that yielding is not, but how did, how did Jesus yield to the Father? And we can walk you through the Gospels over and over and over, and, and so just a couple high notes. Jesus didn't make a lot of demands, did he? Jesus didn't make a lot of demands. Uh, fully God and, and fully man, and yet it says in Mark that he did not come to be served, but what he came to serve. So it wasn't beneath him to serve. It wasn't in some way uh, undermining his dignity or his value or his worth, uh, but he came to serve, not to be served. And, and on top of that, he says, I'm just doing what my father showed me to do. I'm just doing what he did. I'm just saying the things that he's given me to say. So we even see uh, yielding there. We see Jesus in the garden and example that we mention often he says not my will but yours be done jesus says not my will this isn't comfortable for me it's not fun not my will but yours be done he didn't make demands he consulted regularly with the father expressed his desire but yielded when it mattered most yielding was jesus loving response to his loving father even when he was treated unfairly and unjustly. I mentioned those flowers and, and 
Nicole loves them, and, and I still don't totally get why she likes them so much. I think maybe uh, she's hoping that the heart behind it is good, and I think the heart is increasingly becoming that uh, over time. Uh, but yielding in marriage uh, is a daily, moment-by-moment entrusting of ourselves to the Lord, even when we're treated unfairly and unjustly. It speaks volumes about our heart. It speaks volumes about our purpose. It speaks volumes about the degree to which we are yielding to the Lord. And it's for our holiness and for others' eternal hope that the world sees our lives, sees our marriages, and finds Wives, how do you create space for your husband to lead? What does that look like? Well, I'll tell you what Nicole does that's fantastic. We'll be talking about something, and she'll say, why don't we pray about that? And you know what's really cool about that to me? I think what she might be thinking, <laughs> why don't you lead us in prayer more? Why don't you step into that and bring the family together, and let's have a time, maybe even an extended time of focused prayer. She says, why don't we pray about that as we're talking, mid-conversation, in such a gentle and kind and thoughtful way of just inviting me into that, uh, but not being demanding and not being belittling and not being disrespectful. Another thing she'll do with the kids sometimes, uh, she's working through a, a challenging situation. Uh, Nathan, what do you think about that? Huh? What do you think about that? And so in other words, in, instead of just solving everything on her own, instead of just running on ahead without me, instead of just uh, sort of isolating herself, she, she invites me into some of these things that, that she could do without me. She doesn't need my input in a lot of things. In fact, <laughs> yeah, anyway, she doesn't need my input in a lot of things. She invites me into those in really gentle and kind and thoughtful ways, and she actually is open interested in what I have to say. That's so much better than, why don't you take the kids out more? Why don't you spend more one-on-one time with them? What are you going to do about Ian, Zach, Rochelle? What are you gonna, how are you going to fix this? Great space for me to lead in really thoughtful ways. And um, There's never been a moment in our marriage where I've come to her and said, I am adamant and sure that this is where the Lord is leading and we need to go that way knowing that it would be difficult for her or knowing that she was against it or knowing that she was unsettled in our heart. We've not had that moment. I don't know that we will or will not, but we've not had that moment. Things that we've done, we've spent a considerable amount of time in prayer. We've spent a considerable amount of time discussing. We've been spent a considerable amount of time hearing each other's heart such that when it's decision time, we've been on the same page, but it not, might not always be that way. There might be a point where her thoughtful and loving submission to the Lord is to yield, even if her husband is a knucklehead. That's not easy. So in verse 7, Peter comes at the guys. Um, again, it's, it's like he knows guys aren't going to stay tuned for 
more than like 30 words. So he just unloads it in one verse. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor as the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, if you don't get this right, guys, there is a fracture in your fellowship with the Lord where your prayers are hindered. Your communication with him is stunted, is blocked. There is, there's a barrier between you. God cares enough about the responsibility here that Peter directs at the husbands. And he says, husbands, if you don't get this right, you got an issue with God. And so what we see is you can't be right with God and then have a great fracture with your wife, with your spouse. There's no such thing as succeeding with the Lord and then failing in marriage. They are woven together. Uh, Ephesians 5.25 adds just a little bit more to the weight of this text, saying this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for her. Isn't that a weighty command? Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Basically, just imitate Jesus in the way that he treated all of us. Do that with your wife and you'll be fine. Right? Isn't that a, a heavy thing to consider? Knowing that at some point there might be a moment in my life, a moment with Nicole where I may have to lead us in a direction that she's still unsettled about, knowing that that's a possibility causes me to want to figure out how do I honor her? How do I how do I get chips in the bank so that if and when that happens, she could be on board? And, and so one of the things I learned from uh, someone else is, is I want to let her make as many decisions as she wants to make. As many things as she wants to have a say in and have a choice on, I want her to make that choice and I want her to feel the autonomy and authority to run with it. If she wants to check in with me, great. If she doesn't, that's great too. Uh, the pictures on our walls, almost all of them she picked, including the one that she bought and repainted and put up. Uh, the trips that we're going to do this summer, the things that we're going to do with family. She books, she plans, we talk about it. She pretty much does it all. She likes that. She cares more about where we go. I love, uh, where are we going? What are we doing? Sounds great. If she's got an opinion about something, oh, man, I want to feed that. I want to put gas on that fire. I want to get as many chips in the bank as possible. So if there comes a point where I need to say, it is just clear from the Lord that he has led us in this way. And I know it's especially difficult for her that she doesn't doubt my motives. She doesn't think that I'm trying to just take the reins and ignore her, that that would be impossible for her to even conceive because of our pattern of life together. Just husbands, yield to the Lord by loving your wife. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Guys, when you come home from work, what's your attitude? When you come home from a long day, maybe you're retired. When you get done golfing, when you get done fishing, when you get done hunting, when you get out of the shop and you come in, what's your attitude? Do you think that in some way, because you've worked a long day, that your wife owes you concierge service that evening and a hot meal and attention? Sitting in front of the television, uh, watching ESPN with a soda, thinking that it's your wife's job just to, to wait on you and make sure you have what you need? 
from Ephesians 5, from 1 Peter 3, get off the couch, help her engage in her world. My wife's home with three kids all day. You know what that does to you when you haven't had adult conversations all day? You have one kid who responds cerebrally and questions everything ad nauseum. You have one who responds emotively and responds emotionally to everything, and they play those off each other. And then the third is a hybrid who thinks he's king of the world and, and wants to break down every wall or barrier that you put up. I mean, how, how dare I come home and then sit on the couch, ignore the kids, not pay attention to the kitchen, not pay attention to maybe a mess on the floor because I have worked the day. I'm the breadwinner. Do you see that anywhere in here? Like, does that seem to mimic the heart of our Savior, Jesus, who we're commanded as men to, to love our wives like Christ loved the church? I mean, he sacrificed for the church beyond what was reasonable with his very last breath, with everything that he had, he sacrificed for us, for the church. Guys, do you know what uh, fills your wife's tank? Do you know what encourages her? Do you know what builds her up? Do you know what passions she has? I mean, for the most part, we know what guys' passions are. Hunting, fishing, and and building, and breaking, and fixing, and building, and breaking, and fixing. And There's a gun show today. That's a cool thing. Probably see some of you there. We know what guys' passions are. Guys, do you know what gifting the Lord has given your wife? What have you done to help her discern it? and to put gas on the fire of her following the Lord and using her gifting. What passions has the Lord given her? Do you know what passions the Lord has given her? Do you know what's heavy on her heart right now? Do you know what gets her excited right now? If you don't, you might be in the way. If you don't know what her passions are and you don't know what her gifting is, you might be in the way of her discovering and using those giftings and passions. Peter says she's a co-heir with Christ. She's a fellow heir of the grace that is to be given to you. What fills your wife's tank, guys? What encourages them? What builds them up? For us, it, it means sending McCole out to dinner by herself. Sometimes it's an extended dinner because it's abandoned in a hotel overnight and a book and a Bible and a journal, and, and she's gone for 24, 36 hours. That fills her up. So what do I got to do? Watch the kids? Make sure they eat? Make sure that when she gets home, the house looks somewhat put together so that she thinks the house didn't fall apart when she was gone. We all know the house does fall apart when she's gone, but I want her to come back and not think that because I want her to go away and rest and to recharge. It's something that means something to her. It fills her up. Guys, what fills up your wife? What have you done recently to advocate for that, to make space for that, to set aside money for that, to set aside time for that? Mark, uh, in the book of Mark, there's this conversation Jesus has, and um, disciples are, are, I don't even remember what they're doing, uh, but they look at Jesus and they say, hey, um, can we ask you something? So that's always bad, right? When, if you're a parent and your kids say, can we ask you something? You know what they're going to ask you is not something you're going to want to do, and they're just feeling out the waters to see if maybe it happens to be that full moon day where everything's right, and they can, they can ask for something that you wouldn't normally grant. They go to Jesus. Jesus, can we ask you something? 
I imagine Jesus reluctantly, and he knows what's in our heart, just, <laughs> go ahead, hit me with it. Well, nothing too big, Jesus. We just kind of want to be on your left and right one day in heaven. You know, not a big deal, but could you make an extra big throne, or maybe it could be like a three-seater, and you're in the middle, and we'd be on the left and the right. I mean, if you wanted to do that, that would be fine. And how does Jesus respond? Reminds him, first shall be last, the last shall be first. Reminds him that he didn't come to serve, but to be served, but he came to serve. And the sense is, guys, if you're trying to climb the ladder, if you're trying to exalt yourself, you just don't get it. You have missed it completely. You have missed the purpose that Jesus came for. You have missed who he is. You have watched his life and not learned a thing. As we think about marriages today, how do we... How do we have marriages that cause people to see our lives and find Jesus? How do we have marriages, wives, where your disobedient husbands see your exemplary behavior and are won over, it says, without a word? Like, that's freeing, right? Like, you don't have to keep making the same case over and over. You don't have to keep uh, badgering over and over. They, they, without a word, they'll be won over. So wives, yield to the Lord. Yield your, to your husband. Don't put your hope in external beauty. Don't put your hope in your husband. Put your hope in God. Guys, you want something meaningful that will last, that doesn't feel like being a roommate, that feels like being one, that doesn't feel like something you tolerate, that feels like something and someone you delight in? Just love your wife like Christ loved the church. Give yourself for her sacrifice honor her understand her live with understanding learn who she is if you haven't learned who she is it's going to be really hard to live with her and do things good for her if you know who she is it's not hard at all you know the passion the gifting that she has what are you doing to put gas on that fire? Jesus says, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And just this sometimes good, sometimes tough reality that you dive into every facet every relationship lord and as you do that you expose our pride our sin our selfishness you expose lord the ways that we don't trust each other and we don't trust you and so we cling to doing things uh, in a way that that puts walls up and and protects us and guards us lord but also keeps us out of your will keeps us away from something that has the ability to cause people to see our lives and find Jesus. Lord, may we engage honestly with your text, be open to whatever it says. Lord, make us responsive. In Jesus' name we pray.